I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. This episode is part of our mini series on maritime disasters. If you have not caught up on that yet, then please do so. There are some remarkable episodes, most recently on the Empress of Ireland, the tragedy that became known as Canada's Titanic, when this mighty ship went down in minutes in the St Lawrence River. We have an episode on the Titanic itself, in which I speak with the man who has interviewed more survivors of the Titanic disaster than anyone else alive. We also have a separate and very interesting episode on Titanic's anchors. Other episodes in the Maritime Disasters series include the Lusitania, the Mary Rose, coffin ships, and there's much more coming your way soon as well. But today we are investigating the tragic events of July 1956, when a true icon of maritime history, the magnificent Andrea Doria, sank off the coast of Massachusetts, having been rammed by another passenger liner. The Andrea Doria was built in the 1950s, born from Italy's bruised pride after the Second World War. And the Andrea Doria helped put Italy back on the map, a major player in the world of transatlantic travel. She wasn't just any ship, she was a vitally important ship to the Italian nation, which made her an icon. Launched in 1953, she enjoyed a successful, though brief, career that was cut short by the terrible events of July 1956. To find out more, I spoke with the excellent Pierrette Simpson. Now, if you need to know pretty much anything about this ship and the events, then Pierrette is the person to speak with. She authors newsletters, blogs, books, short stories, journals, novels, film scripts, documentaries, all about the events. And she's instrumental in working with museums, in telling the story of the Andrea Doria, and in organising get-togethers for survivors. Well, why such a fierce interest in this ship, you might ask? Have you worked it out yet? Pierrette was, of course, on board. As ever, I very much hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Here is the fabulous Pierrette Simpson. Well, 
Pierrette, thank you very much for joining me today. It is a pleasure and an honour, Sam. Thank you. So, the Andrea Doria. Um, where do we... Uh, do you know what? I'm going to begin somewhere else, actually. I've never talked to the survivor of a shipwreck before. <laughs> so I'm very, really excited to be talking to you. I'm alive and well, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's find out what happened. Um, let's let's begin with the, the ship, the Andrea Doria. And um, when was she built and why was she built? She was built in Sestriere, Italy, by the Ansaldo Shipyard. And she was launched in, oh goodness, 71 years ago. And she was built as the pride of the Italian line. She was built as the crown jewel to represent the Renaissance of Italy from the ashes of World War II. She was supposed to be glamorous and beautiful and everything that represents the best of Italy. It was filled with artworks of every kind, ceramics, paintings. It had the most modern technical equipment, the most modern radar. Um, it was beautiful in the interior and in the exterior. Everybody knew of the Andrea Doria. Yeah. Not very big, but they made up for that by the the quality of the fittings, it sounds like. Yes, it was not one of the largest ships in the ocean. It was uh, probably middle size, but uh, she made up for it absolutely in every other quality, including the extraordinary captain and crew. Yeah, and built for the transatlantic route. So we should remind everyone that this is... Um, yeah, it is the fifties, but it's yes. um, it's it's before uh, transatlantic air air flights. I mean, this is the, basically your only option of getting across the Atlantic quickly. Yes, it was definitely transatlantic yeah. from uh, Genova to a few other ports, and then to New York. And it was the one hundred and first trip that it would make. I guess voyage would be a better word. So I was on the 101 Unlucky Voyage. <laughs> Why were you on board? I was on board for a very unique reason. Um, I was on board with my grandparents. And um, they were bringing me to America to meet my mother because my mother had left Italy when I was 15 months old. And she came to America in the Detroit area, and she would build a, a better life for me when I would eventually join her. So I did not know my mother. We were coming to meet her and my new family, my stepdad, and I had a baby sister, and uh, we would have an, a new life. My grandparents sold everything and left the only community they had ever known and uh, sold all their animals and, uh, you know, everything that was precious to them. They left behind so they could always be a part of my life in America. Mm, incredibly courageous de decision. And how old yes, were you? Yes, I was nine. So I had not uh, seen my mother for eight years. Gosh. Yeah. Uh, but old, old enough to have to 
develop a, a strong sense of memory and being able to kind of process events quite clearly in your brain, I suspect. Um, where, where, what was your what was your accommodation like? It was a tourist class, also known as third class, uh, filled with immigrants. The room was uh, it was very simple. <laughs> um, but we had a pool, and we stayed outside in the pool. Now, I have to tell you, Sam, that my grandparents, especially my grandmother, were paranoid of water. So for them to allow me to go into the pool uh, was extraordinary. And there were three pools, which had never been built on a, on a ship before. So it was very luxurious. And I would swim with Norma Di Sandro, the three-year-old that would later uh, lose her life, and um, met some other children. And it was just, it was great fun. Uh, to me, it was luxury. It was very different from the farmhouse that looked like a Van Gogh painting with a, the light bulb hanging from the ceiling and a black <laughs> wood-burning stove. Um, so it was very luxurious, and it was fun for me. My grandparents didn't think it was fun, but they kind of settled in, especially by the eighth day. <laughs> How long did the journey take? Well, it was a nine-day journey, Sam, and, and it was on the eighth night that the tragedy happened. Mm. Um, so take us, through, take us through the events. We were only 60 miles from the uh, U.S. coastline. When I, I reread that um, Yesterday, I thought, wow, how unlucky were we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, we boarded in Genova, Italy. We had a wonderful uh, eight days, except for one very turbulent uh, night. Um, actually, turbulent day. I remember being not very well that particular day, but I don't think anybody was. Uh, it was just a beautiful trip until the eighth night. And um, something just um, extraordinary happened that was never supposed to happen in the age of radar. It was 11.10 p.m. And my grandmother and I were celebrating. Uh, she had let loose and relaxed and decided she was going to have a great time because we were going to land in the new world, America, America. So um, she and I were dancing in the social hall, well, along with a lot of other tourists, uh, tourists excuse me, in tourist class, uh, immigrants. And my grandfather decided to be a responsible person, and uh, as he always was, and to be in his cabin down below. And he was always watching his briefcase. And... Um, at 11.10 p.m., we heard this extraordinary noise in the middle of the Atlantic, that just thunderous. And, and all of a sudden, the ship went into the air uh, on its right side, up in the air, and, and it inclined drastically to the, to the left side, which is also known port side, as you know. And it went back to center, trembling, and then it settled on the right side, which is the starboard side, and it stayed there. And even the initial list was 19 degrees. Meanwhile, my grandmother and I um, 
were hanging on to each other. Furniture was flying everywhere. Everyone was screaming. Words like Titanic, a furnace blew up. We we hit a a, a mine. Uh, we hit an iceberg. Um, an elevator crashed. It was just unfathomable that something like this, you know, would happen. And uh, we couldn't walk. Everybody was somewhat injured or drastically injured. Fortunately, my grandmother and I were not. So um, we started pushing furniture up to balance the ship. This is how desperate we were. And then all of a sudden, my grandfather appeared, and he had his hat on, and he had a suit on, and carrying his briefcase, and his pant legs were rolled up to his knees. He had been treading in water down below, and he had made it up the stairs with everybody clamoring to get up to the um, uh, up one one flight up and. It was just in the dark and and, and uh, the smell of smoke and fuel and electrical lines burning. It was just complete pandemonium. There he was in the social hall with us. How he found us in the dark, uh, I don't know. His eyes were just bulging out of his head like he had seen a ghost. But we were together, Sam. And um, we sat on the floor and we said, Ave Maria, piena di grazie, and uh, the Hail Mary with um, now and at the hour of our death, amen, uh, struck a chord that uh, was, you know, made people sob. And um, But I have to say, most people really calmed down. Uh, some were still hysterical, but we just prayed and prayed, thinking that was the end. And we were hearing these horrible noises underneath us. We were sinking with each noise. Um, we thought it was the end. Mm. What, did these people <clears throat> soon realize that there had been a collision? Well, all of a sudden, somebody came from somewhere and said, I saw what happened. Uh, we, were, we were rammed by another ship. We were hit. Um, and we couldn't believe it. So we knew we were in, in, in big trouble. Uh, was was there a, a kind of desire to, to get out on deck quickly, or were you sort of happy in your prayer circles, waiting waiting for others to take charge? Well, we thought it was futile, so we didn't think anybody was coming. We would see from one from uh, one side of the room to the other some uh, some mariners who um, the sailors who were in white, beautiful white suits, just covered with oil, running back and forth. They were setting up grab lines. Uh, they were trying to uh, communicate, but uh, it was pretty pretty useless to try to communicate, especially since the loudspeaker system had been compromised when the cables were broken in certain areas. So later on, people would report that they never heard anything or that they only heard a broken message. Static me, <laughs> which means stay calm. <laughs> <laughs> Difficult to Difficult. do. And is the ship still listing very severely? It was listing and listing more and more all the time. So finally, and I think it was about three hours later, hard to tell, um, a man came through the deck doors and he, he yelled out, the rescue ships have arrived. 
You must come up to the deck and we will get into the lifeboats. We thought, how are we going to get up to the upper part of this room? We had to crawl. Furniture was, you know, all the way down to the bottom. There was nothing to hang on to. But we made it to the deck door somehow. We made a human chain and we pushed our backs against the rail and we tried to make it to the the most inclined side that by that time was probably 20 some or 30 some degrees because it sank when it was almost 50 degrees list. So we made it, some of us made it, some did not because they were terribly injured or um, um, hit with a deadly blow by hitting the, the swimming pool. I don't think that happened too much though. I think it was mostly a lot of injuries from people slipping in the uh, condensation of the fog on the deck, and, but most of us made it to the lower side. And there were two young men there and they had a foreign accent They didn't speak Italian that I remember, but they tied a rope around my waist. That was so frightening, Sam. Now, this is at night, right? Fortunately, the moon was shining. The fog that had been going on all day long, the conditions were just gray. Um, The the foghorn had been blowing throughout the day. Uh, for that reason. And we made it to the lower side of the ship to be lowered. And there I was dangling on a rope. And the list was so heavy because um, of the continuous incline that I did not know I was being lowered into a lifeboat. I thought I was being (laughs) lowered into the ocean. I couldn't see it. The lifeboat was underneath the list. And the torrential waters were pouring in at a thousand tons per hour. So the lifeboat was now rocking back and forth and crashing against the ship. The lifeboat was from the French liner Ile de France. And uh, I made it into the lifeboat and there were other people screaming um, hysterically and it, it was very frightening without my grandparents. Fortunately, they made their way down on their own accord. I cannot believe my grandmother did that because of her um, fright of water. She made it down and one of her legs went into the water and she was pulled in. She screamed. There we were, huddled. My grandfather, kind of against the, the laws of the, of the sea, right, where women and children first and then uh, the men stayed on board to help. Well, he was in his mid-50s, which I thought was very old, and <laughs> I'm now 20 years older than that right now. Um, he made it down with his briefcase and the hat on his head. How he had time to dress, find us in the social hall, and then, and then he made it down into the lifeboat with us, which was amazing because a lot of families were separated. Once the lifeboat was full and they filled up fast, then they would take off, whether all the family members were on there or not. So families did not know 
some families did not know whether their loved ones were safe or where they had gone. Was there much difficulty in launching the lifeboats in the first place because of the angle of the vessel? That's a very good question, Sam. Um, it was such an unfortunate situation. The blow to the Andrea Doria from the Stockholm, the Swedish liner, was never expected to do such damage. Uh, naval architects, marine engineers had never imagined such, such penetration of one-third of a ship our ship. And so the lifeboats on the starboard side where we were um, being lowered from, they were out so far from the ship. I think it was 20 feet. So they could not be, we could not um, um, get into them from the muster stations where we were assigned, had been assigned, you know, during the drill. Um, so we had to either jump into the ocean or um, go down by rope or whatever means it could be. Um, the captain was brilliant in that he uh, lowered, or he had his crew, of course, lower nets from the swimming pool. Um, he had seen that in World War II movies, and some people climbed down these, um, what are they called again? Like a cargo net. Yes. Very good, the cargo nuts. Mm. You know, everybody made their way down how they could on the uh, on the right side, the starboard side. On the port mm. side, Sam, the lifeboats would not launch. They could not be lowered from their davits because the incline was so extreme. So um, Officer Badano, who was in charge, tried and tried. And so the people on the uh, that had gone to their muster stations on the port side just sat there waiting for some kind of announcement. And it was hard to walk anywhere. It was all greasy and fog condensation. So, yeah, the, the lifeboat situation was drastic. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
You mentioned the Ile de France. Were there other ships that came to your your aid? I mean, you you weren't far off the coast. Was there? A, did people kind of group together and, and come out to help? Absolutely, we had so many rescue ships thanks to the vicinity of the U.S. shoreline. Uh, we had cargo ships. We had uh, cutters. We had the Coast Guard, of course, uh, Navy training ships. It was it was like magic, really, that, that we had so much help. And, of course, the Ile-de-France had turned around in the fog just because of one message from Captain Kalamai saying, Captain, we need help immediately. He did, Captain de Baudillon did not know um, what the, Captain Kalamai needed or what the uh, urgency was. He turned the ship around in the fog against all insurance um, regulations, of course, taking a, a big risk of running into other ships in the ocean. And they saved 730 of us, including the three of us from my family. Mm, wonderful. Yes. The, um, let's talk about blame. Yes. Um, this kind of event couldn't happen without someone having to shoulder the blame. What, what, what happened? Well, um, history has changed quite a bit from the beginning um, because it was reported in, uh, in real time for the first, I think it was the first, well, it was, it was the first event to ever be covered in real time. So a lot of the information sent back to shore from helicopters, airplanes, um, the rescue ships, was very inaccurate at first about how many survived, what had happened. You know, it, it couldn't be discerned right away. And then um, in the summer, or in the fall, beginning of fall, um, there were um, hearings in New York. And the hearings uh, went very badly for the Italians. Um, the The Swedish-American line not s soon after the the accident, um, decided that they were going to blame us. So they filed a suit and uh, said that we were culpable. Not much later, the Andrea Doria Italian line representing the Andrea Doria filed a countersuit saying that it was not our fault; it was their fault. <clears throat> So it was um, it was a very strange situation. So the the hearings were scheduled in New York, and um, it was very bad because Captain Nordenson was always, and I put in quote, sick when it was time for him to um, to to testify, um, and the Italian the Italians uh, did know English. The Swedish interpreter did their best, but I don't think it was a great translation of what was going on. Captain Kalamai was very stoic. He wasn't uh, speaking up for himself the way he should have. And um, things were going so badly and so slowly. Meanwhile, Sam, survivors were claiming loss of life, loss of property, that was mounting into the millions, 85 million to be more precise. And um, 
it was not going well for the insurer that you know was Lloyd's of London because, you know, the payout would have had to be quite large. So um, they, they decided to make a settlement out of court and there would be no blame. So, um, and, and Lloyd's of London was the insurer for both ships. So that was the end of that. Uh, however, the media had a heyday with the Italians because we had a, a not so good of a reputation after World War II. Uh, we had Mussolini, and of course there was uh, the mafia from years before, and there, you know, we were uh, uneducated, uneducated immigrants for the most part. Um, especially from the South, because that's just how things were. We didn't have a good reputation, so everything was blamed on the Italians. <laughs> it had to be their fault, because the Scandinavians are level-headed. They're logical, and they're educated. It had to be our fault. So, um, for years, Captain Calamai was blamed the Italian government, which is so uh, incredible to me, did, did not uh, speak up for him. At first, they signed a document of solidarity toward the captain and the crew, but it was never published. So it was complete silence, and it was complete silence from the... Um, oh, the Office of Communications and... Um, advertising, they said, do not speak up. Italians will never believed, be believed. So do not speak up, be silent. So we stayed silent and it was not good hmm. for us. We didn't stick up for ourselves. Our government didn't stick up for ourselves, for, our, for us. And so um, it, it was very bad. And then um, the other thing that was really bad for sealing this reputation that it was our fault was that uh, author and New York Times journalist Elvin Moscow uh, was asked by the, I believe, the Swedish-American line or the government to go with his wife to Sweden and write a book on what had happened. Now, how he would know what had happened is a good question. But it was clear that you know the technical details, scientific details were missing because there was nothing to prove otherwise. So he put together what had been published, what had been said, what the Swedish government probably told him to say. I, I don't know, it's hard to say, but it was definitely not in the Italians' favor. So that sealed the opinion of what had happened. It was the first book out. And the next two were, they were all well written, don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing how they wrote, but what they wrote about the Italian side. Again, they blamed us, and it was never like a very uh, blatant blame. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it was in the details. The devil was in the details. So, I found out about this, even though I had been part of the people, the public that was blaming the Italians in part for the accident because we didn't know any better. I found out through a captain that I met, Captain Robert Mern of the U.S. Uh, um, Merchant Marine Academy 
in New York, and he told me what had happened. He explained to me, and he explained to me that he had been part of um, uh, establishing, inventing, creating a computer simulator at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. It's called the KOR um, by acronym because it was computer simulation that showed exactly what must have happened. They could put in variable scenes of what had happened and various scenarios and, and, and come to some conclusion when they compared it to human testimony um, and that was the first time that you know that was in the seventies that the that something could establish the science behind the explanation in 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 real terms of what had happened. Yeah, I mean, briefly, you've got two two passenger liners steaming very quickly through dense fog, and one turns right, and one turns left. They both kind of knew they were there on the radar, but didn't they hadn't quite clocked they were both large passenger liners. I think that's fair, isn't it? Uh, it, it was. Uh, it's it's yes. It's it's basically what you said. I'm not so sure. The third officer on the Stockholm, who was alone in the. Um, um, like Times Square of the Atlantic, it's called, a, a very foggy and a very busy area. I don't know if he knew there was another ship for quite a while until we got very close. And uh, he had a very antiquated... I have to tell you, Sam, uh, you didn't ask me where the captain was in the Times Square of the Atlantic. Most people don't think about it. They think, okay, well, there's an officer on board. But a captain should be on on deck during these times and not assign a 24, I think it was your old, 26-year-old, inexperienced third officer who's, who was on, who's manning the ship basically by himself. He had a helmsman that was very young, around 21, 22, that was yawing the ship. And for every degree of yaw, it, it, it creates a 50% um, error in the radar reading. And then we had hmm. the crow's nest gentleman, a young man, 19 years old, um, three, three decks up. Um, so the third officer, you know, from your statement, did he know? He was answering the phone across the deck. He was taking readings. He was monitoring this antiquated radar that you had to put in a light to see the range rings. There were two range rings, a 15 and a five-mile uh, five range range. And he, he testified in court. He had changed it to the 15, but he obviously didn't remember or... We don't know. Uh, he put the Andrea Doria when he finally saw a beep that he reported was coming from the port side, his left side, that he could see the red light. And that was when the Andrea Doria was four miles away. And mm -hmm. so 
he, fi he said he saw a red light, the port light. That's impossible because the Andrea, the, the fog conditions and the Andrea Doria was being concealed by the fog and you could only see um, two miles maximum. So he did realize, however, backing up just a little bit, that the ship had been, um, the currents were dragging it too, too, too far north. And I must, I must put in the statement right now, which I probably should have said right from the beginning, but maybe bringing it up to this is, is this point is important. Um, Captain Ordenson had ordered Karstens Johansson, the third officer, to travel in a westbound lane while they were traveling east. So basically, Sam, they were in, not in exactly our lane, but in our territory. So we didn't expect anybody on our starboard side. They didn't expect uh, that we were, we were there on the starboard side. So this third officer made a terrible mistake in judging that we were uh, approaching on his port side. Now, that's impossible because of the computer simulation showing the, the whole scenario and the fact that we were traveling in our own lane. Now, we were only a mile apart, but Captain Kalamai said, okay, I don't have time for miles to make a, a, a starboard turn and get on the other side of them, so we'll just stay here. This is a safe distance. Well, he realized that the other ship was coming right at us. And so he ordered a hard to port. He was blamed for decades for that because you're always supposed to turn. If you think there's going to be an accident, you're supposed to turn to starboard. He would have needed at least 11 more seconds to do that. So Murphy's Law played into it. The inexperienced third officer uh, manning a, a ship and 500 passengers in, in the foggy Times Square of the Atlantic, and they claimed there was no fog. <laughs> the Nantucket Lightship reported fog. They did not have their foghorn on. They did not even sound their horn when they were making an extreme second right turn. The first one, was to correct from the currents that had brought us brought them too far north. The second one was when he saw our lights and he testified in court. I, they were crossing from the port side. They, they, they crossed in front of us. No, we were never on their left. We were on their right. It was the, the um, misreading of the radar, which has been called a radar-assisted collision which was complicated by the helmsman yawing the ship. And who knows where we were at the point that the third officer finally, you know, saw us coming. Uh, we were very close. But you know what, Sam? I don't blame it on him. I blame it on the captain. He should have been there instead of being in his cabin and ordering the young man to travel in the wrong lane. 
Now, that law has been changed, obviously. You are assigned, if you're a sea captain, you have a lane that you must stay in there. Back then, there wasn't. So, as I said, Murphy's Law, it's hard to believe, even when I reread my book, that this, this third officer either panicked or from habit of turning right, he turned right into us, rammed us at full speed in you know, a huge ocean. <laughs> at the same time, we managed to be in the same spot at the same time to create this almost in- impossible collision. Yeah, it's a metaphor for history itself, I think, that where, where a sort of inconceivable tiny moments can lead to something which theoretically should not have happened. Exactly. Uh, Pierrette, thank you so much for uh, sharing this story with us. And um, you've uh, been very helpful and put, put me in touch with some uh, other fantastic contributors. So there will be um, parts two, three and four of this podcast that all of our listeners can uh, get stuck into. So Pierrette, for now, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much, Sam. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for doing this. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, don't let this be the last thing that you do to interact with the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Please go back to our brilliant back catalogue and check out a huge range of maritime history. Yes, we have our mini-series of maritime disasters, but also there is so much more, not least our mini-series on great naval battles, on maritime myths and legends, and so on. Do please come and check that out. Please also don't just listen to the podcast, but check out our YouTube page where we have tons of fabulous material to enjoy, including the use of artificial intelligence to bring ships' figureheads alive, the animation of battle plans, the use of 3D modelling to show you around magnificent ships of the past. You will not believe your eyes, I promise. Please also note that the podcast comes from both the Lloyds Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. So do please check out everything that both excellent institutions are doing. For the Lloyds Register Foundation's archive, you can find that at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk, where you can join up and become part of a society that has been helping to preserve maritime history for well over a century. Nothing could be finer. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.